Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am LaRae Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We're starting today with a personal story from Monica Wood. I'm Monica Wood. I was originally born in LA. Um, My parents are both from Louisiana. So when I was a kid, we moved to Dallas when I was about 10 to be closer to my grandmother who was still in Louisiana. And I was raised there most of my life, junior high, high school, grad school, all the way through college. I recently moved back to LA just for a change about five years ago, because most of my extended family is still here. So I came back for a change to reconnect and hang out with them. I've always been in business, so I have a corporate background, business analyst. Um, I have a consulting business, and I've been in corporate for my whole career pretty much, right out of undergrad. I started and worked my way up from entry level all the way up to upper management. Um, So I've always had a pretty steady job. I was married for a long time, almost 10 years. Um, When we split, I was in Dallas, so that's when I moved to L.A. I I owned a home for, goodness, uh, probably like 12 years, long time. Sold my house, obviously, and then I relocated here to L.A. in 2014, which was goodness, almost six years ago. So I was like 37 at the time. And then I got here, got set up, got a place um, downtown, like a two bedroom loft, you know, everything was going fine for maybe like a year or so. And then after 2015 is when I started having job issues. So I had just signed a new lease and I was there for about three years. So I had to, the first year when the rent went up, and I'm still looking for work, um, the rent had gone up, so I got a roommate. That helped a little. Then the second year, had a little work here and there, but not enough to keep up. The rent went up again. So by this time, it's gone up like 20%. And so uh, having the roommate obviously helped. So I was still trying to get more and more work. And then I had got employed, because I was independent for a while. I got employed because um, I wanted to take the next consistent thing I could find um, while still trying to do my own thing. So I got employed, and then a year later, they had layoffs. So right before my lease ended in 2017 is when I lost that, about four or five months between trying to keep up with the rent. I still had a roommate. The roommate had to leave because it was too expensive for them as well, too. So I didn't have anyone else to help. And then the lease was about to expire. I couldn't sign a new lease because I couldn't afford it. The rent had gone up to $2,700. And this was like maybe a 900 square foot, maybe a thousand. And it was downtown and it had a garage. It was one of the nicer ones, but I could afford it when I got it. I think it was about 2,000. Of course you have utilities on top of that wasn't included, but it was about 2,000. And then the parking was an additional 100 because I had a car. It was additional 125 a month. And that's one of the things I looked for when I moved. I needed a place for my car. So it had gone up from like 2,100 to like 27-something in like maybe two years. And then on top of um, obviously the utilities went up, the trash went up, the water went up, parking, everything goes up. <laughs> so over three years, you're looking at like, I don't know, what is that, 30 40% 
it's a big, it's a big. And then the room, the person that I brought in to help couldn't keep up with it either. I started looking for help. I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do because it all happened within a couple of months. And I was supposed to get some unemployment just to carry me over. That didn't come through. Over the course of like three or four months, I was just, before the lease ended, I was just riding on savings. So I'm like, between looking for a new job, figuring out where to go, and by the time it just all collapsed right at the same time my lease was ending. So I literally had to just pack up my car when my lease ended. I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. It was really scary. So I guess fast forward, I started looking for help. Um, In the meantime, I still don't have work. I still don't have a place to go. I was looking for anything. I got into this study, and it was like a two-week study, so I at least had a place to stay for a study. And in the meantime, I'm arguing about my unemployment. I'm still looking for work, and I still don't have a physical place to go. Um, So while I'm doing that, I'm calling around for shelters and just looking around to see what I can do to get help because I've never been in this situation. And it's just me. I'm single, not married. It's just me. Um, And that's how I came to Safe Park. I found safe parking just through Google. <laughs> I Google. I don't know what I Googled. Shelter for, I just, I don't even remember what I Googled. I was Googling. I came to Safe Park and I filled out their form and they texted me like maybe within an hour, like the study was ending and I did not know where I was going. Like th- my car is loaded with stuff all of my stuff. All, I donated everything, got thrown away that I couldn't fit in my car from my apartment. And just my car is full of stuff. So they text me within maybe an hour. They asked for my insurance. They're like, sure, you can come. Um, just send us your insurance. And I was like, is this real? Every time I talk about it, I can't believe it. I was like, is this real? And she said, I'll try and get, let me contact my boss to see how to get you your decal for your window. And I'll let the security guard come. He just tell me which one you want to go to. So I picked the one in Hollywood because I think it was closest to me at the time. And then that night, within an hour, I was at that lot, which made me feel a little better because it was safe. I didn't know where I was going, but at least I knew how to save place. I just showed them my little thing and they, my approval on my, my text from them. And the guard let me in. I just parked right there. That was um, 2018. I think it was the summer, like around April-ish of 2018. I was there maybe two months. And in that time, I mean, it was like a full-time job for me. I would leave the lot. I would go park my car at Griffith Park. I would go to the nearest Starbucks. And I would be on the phone all day trying to get my unemployment and looking for jobs. So long story short, my unemployment finally came through after almost two months. It's supposed to be immediate. But had it come through, I never would have had to call them. Because it would have given me enough to tide me over for about four months till I got another job. So I finally got that came through, which is obviously a huge relief because one of the programs they have, the Rapid Rehousing, is you need some type of income before they can try and put you anywhere. And I guess I was a lucky one. I just kept fighting for my unemployment. It was like, I need some type of income. I need something. I've never not had income. This is foreign. I have degrees. I'm just, I need to get back on my feet. So anyway, I got my unemployment, which was a huge plus. Um, so Emily helped me get into the rabbit rehousing now that I had some type of income. I went to that, that location and they applied and filled, you know, put me on the list. 
and I had to find a place and get the landlord's approval, obviously, and go through the whole application process. And it was a little tricky because you don't want to tell someone that you don't have a place to go because they look at you different when you don't have a place already. So I had to, I was on Facebook, they have rentals on there. So I tried to use, find an individual that was uh, renting a room rather than trying to go through some property management company. There was no way I would get that. So that came through and I found a room in like Glendale and it was like, I'm like 900 bucks a month or something, very reasonable, fully furnished. It was a you know, cute little house. I got the landlord to approve it. I got rapid rehousing, everything they needed. So they helped me with a deposit. And in the meantime, while I got in, I got the lease, I got the deposit, and they started helping you with rent, I think up to three months. I think it was three months. And in the meantime, I started doing rideshare because now I had a place to put all of my stuff that was in my car for two and a half, maybe three months. <laughs> so I unloaded my car. I'm in my new place. I think this is like September 2018 now. Emily and them, they were like, this doesn't happen very often. I was like, I guess it's just persistence because <laughs> I literally made it a, a job to get my unemployment and look for work. And so in the meantime, while I'm looking for more my regular work, I started doing rideshare and they helped me with my car because my car is old. So they helped me get my car fixed enough to pass inspection so I could do rideshare because it was work related. So they were able to help me with that. So I did that, even though it was a huge below my, you know, below what I'm used to doing, but I'm like, I at least lead to have some type of income. I just don't want to be on unemployment. So I guess fast forward to December, it was like a short lease. It was like maybe five months or something left on the person's lease I took over. And um, I had been doing right sharing, did pretty good. And then by January, I was able to get another room without the help of rapid rehousing. That was a huge plus. So they were able to get me out of the program because their goal is to have you out, I think, within three to four months. January 2019 now. And I got a year lease, which is really nice. It was another room, but it was nice. And then by March of 2019, I finally got regular work. So I didn't have to do ride share anymore. So I got back on my feet. So I probably took almost a solid year to get real work again. And then by this time, obviously, there's no more unemployment, but I had income again. It was like a solid, maybe year-long journey, maybe a little over a year. But it was frustrating. It was scary. It was annoying. It was like all of those words, but I'm glad they have that program. So I've progressed. So I have my own place now instead of, because I feel like I'm a little old. I'm 43 now. I'm a little old to have a roommate. Even though I'm grateful to have a place to stay, it's time to move on and branch out. I think we need more programs like the Rapid Rehousing and the Safe Park, because there's a fair amount of people who have cars. And instead of just being stranded and not knowing where to park, because parking is scarce in LA anyway, I think the program is genius. You have lots that aren't being used. Let people at least use their car. If they have one, let them use their car. And then the structure of the program allows you to help you get back on your feet. So they help you find work. They have the rehousing program. Um, they have programs like that to help you get back on your feet. And it's temporary. It's not like they're going to do it forever. But it gives people motivation to keep going and keep looking. That's what motivated me to go to Starbucks every day and keep applying for jobs and trying to get my unemployment. 
And then the people that don't have a car, because not everyone has a car. I was grateful just to have a car. Like, I can't imagine if I didn't have a car. Um, if you don't have a car, there's too many vacant houses, too many vacant malls, too many empty shopping centers, too many abandoned houses for people to be sleeping on the street, just period, across America. I'll never understand it. I don't get it. Obviously, I've given it a lot of thought now that it's affected me, but there needs to be a way to reuse what we already have. So you want to recycle, well, let's start you know, recycling some of the abandoned houses. Because you can put people there and you can be structured to where it helps them get back on their feet. It's hard to get a job when you don't have an address. So you have this chicken and egg thing. It's like, well, you need to get a job. Well, how am I going to get a job if I don't have an address? It was hard for me just to find a person, even on an individual, to lease a house to. I had to be careful with the way I worded um, what I do and where I live. Because there's a stereotype that comes with it. The people in the safe parking program were like me. I mean, have a community meeting, do a town hall meeting, and they can meet some of us. One time I was at Safe Park, some people came out, um, some like the sponsors, I think, of part of the program, so they could see and meet the people. Because when you put a face to it, it breaks down the stereotype. Like, I'm not the face, I'm not a typical face. From, you wouldn't see me in the store and think, oh, she's homeless. You would, nobody would ever have known. Never. And they probably still don't. I, I haven't told anyone, actually, except you guys. <laughs> Nobody really knows about this. Not even my, really my family. Nobody would know. So I think if you humanize it and put a face to it and it kind of breaks down the stereotype of just like drunk, mental, ill people who don't know anything. That's a stereotype. It's part of it, but it's a stereotype. So I think if you find a way to humanize it, it makes people not scared anymore. I think we need to use what we have, and there's no need for people to sleep on the street when there's like an abandoned house across the way. That doesn't make any sense. We are very grateful to Monica for sharing her story with us. Today's episode is about rising rent. We have a great interview with Christina Livingston, who is the executive director of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Christina, welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. We are thrilled to have you joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into social justice work? Sure. First, thanks for having me. So I grew up actually in a household that didn't do any social justice work. Uh, I grew up in Hemet, which is in Riverside County. And, you know, my mom just sort of went to work and came home and we sort of stayed to ourselves. But then I ended up going to undergrad at UC Berkeley and there I studied sociology and post studies uh, did a summer with Union Summer and then started working for the community group ACORN, which is no longer in existence. But I think between my work at ACORN and before that, sort of my studies uh, at UC Berkeley, it just became so real to me that so many of the things that I had experienced growing up that felt to me like unfair or confusing made so much more sense when I looked out a bit and realized that it's actually all parts of larger structures that were put into place um, that were affecting my life. And I wanted to both help bring people to that reality and do something about it. So for me, my social justice work has both been rooted in my personal history um, as someone who grew up poor and somebody who grew up 
being disconnected from collective action and is also connected to my desire to help people both empower themselves to make those changes and to find sort of collective strength um, along that path. Great. I think it would be helpful for folks if they understood the work of ACE. So can you tell us a little bit about your role at ACE and what ACE does? Definitely. So ACE uh, is a community organization based in California. Um, We've got offices in San Diego, Los Angeles, Oakland, Contra Costa County, and Sacramento. Um, This is our 10-year anniversary, actually. In two days, ACE will turn 10, which is very exciting. And we started the organization because we believe that in order to change the economic and racial realities um, in California that you have got to be organizing the people who are most deeply impacted in our communities. So we've got organizers who go into neighborhoods five days out of the week and they just knock on doors and they ask people, what do you care about and do you want to get together with your neighbors to make changes? And those changes can be, you know, as local as figuring out how to get a stop sign up in front of that busy intersection where we've seen accidents or people run down by cars all the way to, you know, should we be passing statewide legislation and, you know, should we be working to make sure that there's adequate and equitable investment across the state in our communities, you know, sort of the use of our tax dollars and where we are weighing in deeply and budgeting. It can be both very local and it can be much larger, but it's really centered in folks on the ground deciding what they care about and then coming together to make those changes. And I just will say that for ACE, two things are true. One is that we want to focus our work at the intersection of racial and economic justice. Because for us, the United States is a country that is built on racism in order to build up, hold up uh, a capitalist economy. And so we cannot just solve for economic issues without talking about the underlying racial structures that it's built upon. Uh, And we cannot talk about racial justice without talking about the deep economic injustices that exist. So we operate squarely at that intersection. Um, And the second thing for us is that we really like to think about both what are the root causes and who are the sort of common actors who are creating racial and social and economic injustice uh, in the state and across the country. So um, we are really looking up the decision maker line and not just sort of stopping at who are the folks right in front of us who we have access to and really trying to figure out how we get to the deep decision makers to make structural change. Congratulations on your 10 year anniversary. I didn't realize that. That's really exciting. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about your role and also what are the specific issues you work on to achieve that economic and racial justice goals that the organization's focused on? Sure. So uh, I am the executive director of the organization. I wasn't the founding executive director, but I came on as the executive director uh, maybe eight years ago. And before that, I was the deputy director. ACE is a multi-issue organization. We want to be really responsive to what community members are concerned about and care about in their neighborhoods. So we don't limit ourselves uh, around issue areas. However, if there are issues that multiple of our cities and chapters are taking on, then those do rise to the level of statewide campaigns that we take on. And for us, the campaigns that have shown up over and over again, center around housing justice and anti-displacement, 
um, center around access to social services like healthcare and quality education, and center around equitable investment in our communities. So you could see that as sort of budget advocacy work or work to make sure that particular communities are getting the types of resources that they need and are paying for through their taxes. Great. Um, You have done, uh, and ACE as an organization has done extraordinary work around tenant protections. One of the things I thought would be helpful is if we talk a little bit about rising rents in California and what the causes of rising rents are. Yeah. You know, the main cause that most people point to is the lack of housing supply that we have in the state. Um, And it is certainly true that over the last three decades, California has not produced the amount of housing needed to match the population growth to the tune of something like 3.5 million or so units across the state with a huge need for low-income and affordable units in our urban centers. And to explain the underproduction Some people point to restrictive local development and land use policies, you know, that sought to maintain low density near neighborhoods, and they largely prohibited higher density, affordable, you know, multifamily housing developments, which were really needed to keep production in line with demand. Others point to the rising costs of building, and that could be through the rising cost of materials or wages or fees, um, the extended timeline, making it harder to build in the state. So, you know, lack of supply is one factor that many people point to, and I agree that that's a problem. Though I will say that even if we managed to build the number of units that we need to guarantee enough housing for folks, there actually is no guarantee that housing will become affordable in the short term or the midterm, because the majority of the units that are being built right now are luxury and market rate units. So that leaves, you know, poor and working class residents at major risk of displacement. So we need to both look at who we're building for and where we're building in the supply conversation. So, But still, supply is actually just one explanation. Another explanation that has been discussed far less, but in my view really can't be ignored, is that 10 years after the Great Recession, there is still an outsized impact from investors buying up what seems like whole neighborhoods and economically depressed communities across the state. Um, And just to take a step back, pre-recession, we saw Wall Street banks, you know, aggressively peddling subprime loans and then packaging those loans and selling them to investors while simultaneously bidding against them. But when those loans reset and millions of Californians lost their homes to foreclosure, we saw hedge funds like the Blackstone Group, which created a company called Invitation Homes in 2012 and created it to acquire recently foreclosed properties in bulk in economically depressed communities. And they did that just at an unprecedented rate. In LA, Invitation Homes is the city's largest landlord of single-family houses. And it has a mandate to generate the greatest possible profits for its investors, which means that they're arbitrarily inflating rent for profit, while, by the way, providing very little maintenance to the properties, charging exorbitant late fees, aggressively evicting tenants, being overall terrible landlords. So Invitation Homes is an example of what's possible when we allow for nearly unregulated speculation in the housing market. What we saw was the removal of affordable housing from the market, and then those companies drove up rents. And because they had so many units in a particular geography, when they drove up rents, it drove up the rents of the surrounding housing market. 
So that's a second explanation. A third is that the increasing rent rates and the drive to build new units is attributing to the destruction of existing affordable housing options in various ways. You know, that happens, for instance, when older, small complexes are destroyed to build new complexes, but then they are luxury complexes, so the affordability rate is gone. Or when affordability covenants expire and the owners choose not to renew them, but instead to increase that rent to market rate. So there are ways in which affordable homes are being lost and uh, market rate and luxury units are taking their place. So those are all explanations. The last thing I will say is that one of the defining characteristics of the market today is actually the degree to which housing costs are outpacing wages. So Housing costs, even in healthy markets, will always rise, but the fact that wages are not keeping up means that we are in an even worse affordability crisis than we would have been otherwise. So I just want to say that for ACE, while we are working to solve the affordability and displacement crises that we're seeing in our communities on the housing side, we know that we cannot leave out the fight for livable wages because as long as folks are not making enough money to cover basic costs, even if housing costs stabilize, we'll still find people in really vulnerable situations. One of the things I've been really curious about is if the expectations around profit from rental properties has changed. I mean, this whole issue of the disconnect between wages and housing costs, the ratio is very different today than it was 30 years ago. Is that driven at all because people have different expectations of the profit they can make from rental properties? Yes, absolutely. You know, I... I think we will get to a point where there will not be enough folks who can afford the rent that's being charged and that will have have somewhat of a slowing effect. But what's happening, what we're seeing now is that, you know, we're just seeing a displacement of people who can afford it coming in and pushing people out. And so the, those folks who had maybe a little bit more money go into communities that have less services and, you know, have lower rents, but they can pay more. And so we're still in that cycle. So I don't see in the near future us getting to the breaking point where the lack of affordable livable wages is going to slow down um, rent increases at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing just in terms of demographic trends? Because you were talking about, you know, as people who are the traditional residents of a community who can't afford these rising rents, um, as they can't afford them and move out, we are seeing this influx of people who can afford rising rents. Um, and can you talk a little bit about what's happening demographically and why we're seeing such dramatic shifts in communities? Sure. I mean, what we're seeing is a classic case of gentrification um, in our urban cities across the state. I live uh, in Sacramento, but I just moved from the Bay Area. And I'm looking a lot at Oakland, for instance, which 10 years ago was about a third of the population was black. And today, that number is around 10%. And the homeless population in Oakland is maybe 70% black or something like that. Meanwhile, we're seeing the city itself become wealthier and whiter. So we definitely see, and obviously this is not just um, something that we're seeing for black communities. This is also something we're seeing for indigenous communities, which are overrepresented in the homeless population and being pushed out. We're seeing this for Latino communities. We are both seeing them pushed onto the street and pushed into communities, neighborhoods, um, which maybe are more demographically like them, but that have 
have significantly less resources. And we're also seeing lots of folks move into the valley, which is not actually as demographically like the folks who are moving there. And so there's certainly a risk, a fear of animating racial tensions um, in those communities where there's not a strong organizing infrastructure and sort of seeing other kinds of social injustices occur because of that. We see very similar trends in Los Angeles as communities are displaced out of historic communities of color like South LA and people are pushed into communities like Palmdale and Lancaster or pushed out into the Inland Empire. Um, and it's, it's true, it's a challenging situation. There isn't the infrastructure and community for those folks who are leaving a traditional community of color and going into these new communities and tensions arise and horrible statements are made by elected officials. And we've seen a lot of interesting things in Los Angeles as we see all these shifts. Um, I'm interested to talk to you about Prop 10, but it occurred to me that it would be probably helpful for our listeners. Prop 10 was a really big deal because we hadn't seen any state action on tenant protections for many years. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the historical context and then you can help our listeners understand what Prop 10 is and what happened during that campaign. So it had maybe been uh, a couple of decades um, since there was any rent control law that was passed locally in California until around, I want to say 2016, um, when a rent control law was passed in Richmond, California. And rent control is basically in California, it's an option for local governments to place some reasonable restrictions on how high rent can increase year over year while still maintaining a guarantee for a reasonable rate of return for the landowner. For many years back in the 70s, you know, there were cities that were passing rent control laws, um, including Los Angeles, um, in order to help sort of stabilize communities. But not many cities did it. We saw it in Los Angeles. We saw it in San Francisco. We saw it in Oakland. We saw it in Santa Monica, you know, a couple other places. Um, And then it it sort of went silent. There was a lot of concern from landowners that, you know, they weren't going to be able to make profit. And obviously they have got the ear of uh, local legislatures um, and the and the state legislature, which, by the way, has a vast majority of people who are themselves landowners. So we didn't see a lot of movement there. But given the increase in, you know, lack of affordability, we have seen another rise in local jurisdictions trying to make some headway on providing protections for tenants. So one thing that stands in the way is um, a state law called Costa-Hawkins, which basically says that any unit that was built after 1995 could not have any rent control applied to it. So it's only older, significantly older units. Um, It also couldn't apply to any unit that is a single family home or a condo. Prop 10 was an effort to allow local communities to make decisions beyond what Costa-Hawkins had in place. So it would basically repeal Costa-Hawkins and allow local jurisdictions to decide for themselves which units to cover and at what rate. And that would have been really significant. That didn't mean at all that any city who didn't want rent control would pass rent control. They didn't have to at all. It did mean that cities who wanted rent control or cities that had current rent control but were restricted would have a broader range of tools to choose from in order to protect residents. This was heavily opposed by the Apartment Association, 
uh, and the Realtors Association. And they had millions and millions of dollars to spend, and they did spend millions of dollars in misinformation. And that initiative ended up losing um, with about 40% of the vote. However, because the scale of the crisis was so large, uh, it was clear to us that we needed to go back and try through the legislature to pass something around Costa-Hawkins reform if repeal didn't work. And so we started this beginning of the year with uh, a package of bills called Keep Families Home, which included a reform of Costa-Hawkins and included what eventually did get passed as AB 1482, which is a rent cap and just cause eviction protections for about 19 million additional tenants in the state of California. Can you talk a little bit about the obstacles and challenges that were faced during the Prop 10 campaign? You know, how you were able to overcome them to work on the passage of AB 1482 this year? You know, I think the major obstacle that we had was that the fight was cast as a fight between tenants and homeowners, which in fact was not at all the fight that we wanted to take on because we really do believe that passing uh, strong rental protections goes a really long way towards stabilizing communities and fostering good relationships between landlords and tenants. And we actually believe that that relationship is deeply symbiotic and that we need one another and that this should be a fight towards sort of whole stable communities. But that certainly wasn't the fight that we were forced to have, uh, given the $70 million sort of thrown in to sort of keep people divided. You know, they also sort of made people feel like the solution of rent control was a solution that would make a bad situation worse, right? They acknowledged that there was a deep problem crisis that we were facing. But the solution that they are pushing for is a production-centered solution, which is really about building luxury and market rate units and waiting for trickle-down housing to take effect. Meanwhile, our communities, you know, are being displaced in mass, as we've already talked about. So that in itself was really difficult. And I also think that, you know, there's something really strong about the belief that the California dream is really attainable. And so lots of people sort of are like, I want to be a landlord one day and, you know, I want to be able to own homes and will this negatively impact me? Um, And so that kept some folks home. But really it was the disinformation campaign that led people to believe that this was going to be a bad policy solution when in fact more recent studies, uh, there was a study by the Columbia Business School published last April that found that, you know, rent control actually does not decrease the supply of affordable housing, as they were stating. And in fact, that the overall positive impact of rent control includes other effects like reducing inequality and providing, you know, stable economic footing for households, which more than compensates for any loss of market and efficiency. The question is sort of like, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And it's not just a problem of you know, housing supply. It's a problem of equity and community sustainability. And I just don't think that we were able to get that message across given the amount of money that was put into ads to convince people that it was a bad policy solution under Prop 10. Yeah, a lot of these fights are sort of cast as, is it better to use government regulation to try and help people who are struggling? Or should you let the market solve it? And it's interesting how folks sort of 
particularly in the Prop 10 campaign, the opponents of Prop 10 um, sort of cast the market as the best way <laughs> to help people who are struggling. And how do we overcome people's bias um, against regulation? And why is regulation so important? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I don't think that the majority of California voters have a bias against regulation. I think that there is a very well-financed set of actors who are opposed to regulation because they are affected by regulation and they sort of have control over the dominant narrative. I do think that there is some level of mistrust for government by the voting population and the population in California in general, you know, which has a very complicated history and has some reality to it and has some, um, you know, some of it's about like when we are constantly underfunding programs, um, we cannot expect them to work very well. You know, then there's cases like, you know, in Bell where people were, were the, the government there was paying themselves exorbitantly. You know, there's, it's a very complicated situation. But that is, that's not to say, I actually think that the majority of Californians understand that the rules are rigged and that corporations are, through the lack of regulations, particularly after the Great Recession, you know, able to put into place things that would benefit them at the expense of our well-being. The problem is in many of these situations, it is a matter of who can control the narrative or who can convince enough legislators. And on our side, we've got people power versus money power. And it really is a matter of how much power can we build um, and how much you know, how can we raise in the streets to show that there's actually no way to not solve this problem in a way that benefits us? It's, it's a matter of organizing for us. Absolutely. Um, so AB 1482 went into effect January 1st, um, not very long ago, which is very exciting. Yay. Can you talk about the difference that 1482 is going to make in the lives of renters? Sure. AB 1482 is the first tenant protection bill to come out of the Capitol in decades. And it is going to provide some basic protections that tenants across the state have needed all along, right? It basically says that rent cannot increase more than CPI plus 5%. And it's a local CPI. So that really is more like 7 or 8% per year um, for folks. Because before this went into effect, it was totally legal to increase rent by 100%, 200%. And we were seeing that happen. Um, so it will give us some sense of stability. We know how to budget for the following years. We know whether or not we can sort of stay in a place or if we'd like to move as opposed to being displaced, which has all kinds of effects, both personal and communal. And it also will give people protection against evictions that are uh, not warranted, right? So we, you have to be evicted for cause. If you're evicted through no fault of your own, like if the owner wants to move in or if there are significant improvements that need to be made to the unit, you are entitled to relocation assistance. And that's really critical. You know, it, it allows us to have some sense of security. Homeowners through Prop 13 have a sense of security. They know how much is the maximum that their taxes will increase so they know how to budget for it. And again, in a solid community, in a stable community that requires homeowners and landlords and tenants, we all deserve those same protections of stability. Absolutely. And ACE should be and you should be incredibly proud of 1482 because that was a tremendous victory. Um, and like you said, we hadn't seen anything like that in a long time. Can you talk about what comes next? Um, now that we've passed AB 1482, um, what is on the horizon to protect tenants and continue to try and curb rising rents in California? 
there's a couple of things that we're thinking about. One is we believe that we still need to continue to fight where we can for rent control policies locally. What passed in 1482, again, is a rent cap. It's basic protections. But in order to really stop the displacement that we are seeing in places like LA and Oakland and San Francisco and Sacramento and San Diego, we need strong rent control, which means that we need to pass them in our local cities. Um, And strong rent control, in our estimation, is rent control that doesn't exceed 4% 4% a year, 3 4% a year, something around inflation, something that feels much more stable, particularly for the communities that are most vulnerable, for our seniors, for our low-income workers, for our young folks. That is the level of protection that really does help stabilize communities while we collectively try and figure out how to deal with the production that needs to be created in our state. So that's one thing. A second is we believe we need to be building more units that are affordable to our communities very low-income, low-income, moderate-income units. Um, So we're thinking about production policies that can help provide the number of units that we need while not exacerbating the displacement that we're experiencing. Um, So we're thinking about those kinds of things. And then the third is that we do need to continue to find ways to preserve existing affordable units. And we're really interested in thinking through a strategy using land trusts like the Oakland Community Land Trust, um, where ACE has been organizing and getting units of our members placed into the land trust, which means that they are permanently affordable. They belong to the, the land trust. The land itself belongs to the land trust. And community members can rent or lease the structure on top of the land. And those leases, you know, last for 90 nine years. So they've got permanently affordable housing. And if they let it go, the land still belongs to the land trust and remains affordable to the community. Implementation of AB 1482 is going to be significant this year because people are not going to know at the moment what those rights are. We need people to know what they are. And we also need to make sure that folks have right to counsel. That is the way that we can enforce 1482. Um, So we want people to have access early on to counselors to let them know what their rights are, to intervene if needed and when needed on their behalf, and potentially short-term rental assistance that can help people stabilize as they're trying to find permanent housing solutions. Do you think there's an opportunity for statewide right to counsel or some action at the state level on right to counsel this year? I think it's possible. You know, we're starting to have conversations with folks about having a collective ask, a budget ask, and there's a lot of interested folks. The good news about this fight is that, unlike in the Prop 10 fight, there are organizations far and wide who have gotten behind the implementation of 1482 um, and really want to see it be successful, either because they believe that that was a very good solution in and of itself or because they believe it's a good solution as we're fighting for more. So there's a broad group of folks in the housing arena, not just tenant organizing groups, who really want to see 1482 be successful. And that's the coalition of people that we think we need to get something like Right to Council passed statewide. That's great. So this podcast is all about housing justice, and we like to end by hearing about what are the key components of housing justice that are important to you personally that you'd like to see be at the heart of this work going forward. The first thing I'll say is that at ACE and personally for me, we believe that everyone, every, everyone deserves a safe and affordable place to call home. And For us, that means that we've got to push to establish housing as a human right. It's not a commodity that we can, you know, leave to the whims of the market and leave vulnerable folks out to dry. 
it is something that we've got to fight for all of us to be able to have access to safe and affordable. And the second thing for me is that in this country and in this state, we have seen decades of intentional racial housing segregation. And because of that, the policies that we pass now, every single one of them is at risk of reinforcing those structures of of racism. And so I am really looking at how we are correcting those decades of intentional racial segregation and reimagining what real stable community housing looks like for all of us here in California. That's great. Christina, it has been such a pleasure having you on the Housing Justice LA podcast. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. On January 9th, we held a Housing Justice Summit and were lucky enough to have our insanely talented DJ, James B., spontaneously sing Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. He, too, has lived experience of homelessness. It is not an overstatement to say that he brought down the house. I, I, I gotta say this. I'm really, really uh, honored to be here. I was telling Molly and, and Lorraine uh, to hear you guys to be passionate about uh, a population that I was a part of. You know, I slept about three blocks away from here. It looks pretty from here, but it don't look too good when you're down there on the ground. It's just a good thing that we don't look like what we've been through. Did you agree? God is really, really good. Lorraine asked me to do this song, so I'm gonna try it. Oh, 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 oh,
We hope that you'll keep listening. We hope that you'll subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends, tell other people about the podcast. We also are going to have a question and answer episode later in the season. So we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions you have. We have the email address housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast.com at gmail.com. Send us any questions you have so that we can answer your questions later in the season. And feel free to send us any comments or ideas as well. The Housing Justice LA podcast is made possible by a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. The podcast is produced by Bill Lance with intro music provided courtesy of Adam Goldman. 